thing that I like to say a lot of times is go for the C. And what I mean by that is, unfortunately, we have this system where you jump through certain hoops and then you're evaluated on those things. Did you complete the homework? Were the answers the right answers? You know, did you do the essay? Was it turned in on time? You know, there are these things. And a lot of their resistance often has to do with that. They don't know where to start. It's very emotionally overwhelming. It just feels big, whatever the homework is or the assignment is. But the go for the C is just an example of one way of what I'm really talking about, which is how to alleviate some of the pressure. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reaver, and I have got a great episode with my friend, executive function coach, and frequent guest of the pod, Seth Perler. And I wanted to have a frank and honest conversation with Seth about what is and what is not working in schools right now, especially as we are once again in that back to school season. And of course, there have been many changes in education since the start of COVID, including the inclusion of technology in almost every aspect of learning and the increased testing that students are being subjected to since returning to campus. And we also know that neurodivergent kids tend to be impacted by these changes more than other students. So what can we do as parents? Where should we be putting our energies? That's what Seth and I get into in this episode. And I also crowdsourced questions from the Tilt community before talking with Seth. And I promise you, I got through as many of those topics as I could, including how to help kids with ADHD who are pretty much checked out of their school day, navigating that dance of technology and distraction, dealing with school refusal, and much, much more. And if this is your first time hearing from Seth, here's a little bit more about his work. Seth is an executive function coach and consultant with extensive experience addressing extraordinarily diverse learning needs. He was a teacher for 12 years, working with a diverse range of gifted and twice exceptional or 2E students in charter schools for eight years, and teaching students with ADHD, dyslexia, and other executive function challenges. He has been an executive function coach for middle, high school, and college students since 2010. And again, I have had Seth on this show a bunch before, and you can find links to those episodes. They are all worth a listen on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at tiltparenting.com slash session 300. Okay, and now let's get to my actual conversation with Seth about all things school. Well, hello there, Seth. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Debbie Reaper. So good to be here. I'm excited to chat with you today. It's been a while too. I'm just realizing since you've been on the show and listeners, I'll just say again, please go back and listen to the episodes that Seth and I have already done together because we have done some very deep dives into executive function, into resistance, did a great conversation between Seth and Asher about resistance. So there's a lot there. But for this conversation, we want to talk about school, what is and isn't working for school, And we'll kind of see where it goes. But as a way to get started, I guess I'd like to know kind of what's on your mind right now. Like you and I, we're friends, we collaborate, we support each other in our work and personal lives. And so this conversation came up because you were feeling like you were seeing some things and just even in school. And I'll just say for listeners, we're recording this as we're wrapping up the 21-22 school year. This will be released 
leading into the 22-23 school year. So I'd love to know what's on your mind right now with regards to school specifically and what's happening for our kids. Yeah, I don't have a list in front of me or anything. So just, and I know that we have a lot of questions to go through. So, but some of the things that concern me are not things that just concern me lately. And some of them concern me lately. So I'll start and I'll be real brief, but I'll start at the beginning. Things that just generally concern me about school is that we... Now, Debbie and I live in the United States, so if you're in another country, I'm sure your school systems are a little bit different. But generally speaking, in the school systems here, they're very outdated in a lot of ways. Now, I want to preface everything I'm going to say right now um, with this. For all of you teachers out there, if I am not teacher bashing, Debbie is not teacher bashing. And we, I guess the way that I look at it is I was a teacher for 12 years. I love teachers. I so appreciate teachers. Teachers are under-resourced, underpaid, underappreciated, absolutely positively 100%. And I feel like teachers are like these sort of saviors for the whole system. So you have this top-down system. What a top-down system is, is a system where you have sort of, it's almost like a hierarchy or a family tree or something. You have like the very, very top, which are supposedly like the most important people, you know, your superintendents, then your principals, then your teachers, then your kids. And it's, it's sort of this illusion of it's the way we designed it. But what I want to share here is that at the top of the system, there's not a lot of heart and that there's a lot of value. You know, there's the term, not everything that's measured matters and not everything that matters is measured. There's a lot of value on data and grades and scores and performance and school performance and all of these metrics that these people look at to determine if a school is doing its job and blah, blah. Well, a lot of it is just complete bullshit because what happens is you get good teachers in there and good teachers, yes, they have skills. Yes, they know how to teach all these different subjects. Yes, they they know how to dance different dances. Like how does a teacher dance the dance of doing what they need to do for the principal in the district and dance the dance of shutting their classroom door and doing what those kids need for their life? And, you know, how does a teacher build their artistry? And teachers are not valued as artists and creators, but they are. They create curriculum. They create learning experiences. And But they're not seen as that. You know, they're seen as people who should regurgitate curriculum because if you do that, then you're going to get the right scores and then that's going to show that everything, blah, blah, blah. So I just wanted to say, if it ever, if during this conversation, we say something about teachers that's negative, that's because there are teachers who shouldn't be in the classroom. And there are teachers who, who, especially for neurodiverse kids, who just don't get it. I'm just going to be very direct about that. But the vast majority of teachers are just miracle makers, miracle workers, unsung heroes, and just can really save kids' lives and change the trajectory of kids' lives. So I want to start with that. But some, some of the, the old problems are just that, for me, it's letter grades. I think that letter grades are immoral and outdated and archaic and should be done away with, and that we should have more authentic forms of assessment. I think that the inequality on so many levels for so many, not just neurodiverse kids, but so many diverse types of kids in all different ways, that, that there's just so many things that are just not, not equal, not equitable. I was working with a school district about 10 years ago, and they did away with their whole equity program in a progressive city. What, what's going on? Class sizes. Brilliant teachers are magic. I mean, they, they can... You know, you can have a professor with a a group of 500 people who can do magic, but generally speaking, 
to put 25 or 30 or 35 kids in a classroom and expect one person to serve them, that, that doesn't make sense. The lack of interdisciplinary education or, or cross-curricular education that involves multiple subjects, you know, we tend to think, okay, you have the math class and the science class and the social studies class, and they're broken up. That's not how life works. To not have sort of more involved project-based, interest-based, curiosity-based, democratic classrooms that allow kids to be a part of creating the curriculum, not teaching teachers how to create curriculum that involves what the kids say they want to do and how to empower teachers to have really interesting, neurodiverse, diverse curriculum that allows people of all different abilities to, you know, but we're so dependent on these grades and structures that it really doesn't empower us to think that way even. And something that I see more now than before is that the pressure, and I guess this is probably a good overarching thing and then we can move on, but the pressure that I see that is on kids now as compared to five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the pressure on their backs, the expectations to do all the things, manage all the things, the social, the emotional, the personal, the self-care, the academic, the extracurricular, social media expectations and pressures. There is just so much pressure And something else that's more new, which I also think is a pressure, is the demand on their attention, having addictive devices and things that have never existed before that demand attention. You know, you only have whatever, 16 waking hours a day, and and we get to choose where we want to put our attention, our time, our energy, our resources. And there is so much pooling on them and pushing on them that for them to find out who they are and what they're made of and how they fit into the world and how they want to contribute to society and the world and the planet and their communities and their families and their friends and how they want to build skills and talents and interests and like find what matters to them, you know, and how, how to like take this young human being and empower them to like just shine. There's so much pulling and pushing on them that I feel like it's hard for them to just be in this world and just sort of, kids don't have to be bored. Some of them don't know what it feels like to be bored. They aren't getting outside. They're not interacting with nature. They're not looking at the clouds drift by. So I'm just seeing a lot more deeper problems, deeper depression, deeper anxiety, more addiction problems, not just with technology, but real addiction problems, real emotional problems, more intense and them not knowing where to go. Now, on the other hand, oh my God, Debbie, we are so fortunate. Like there are so many brilliant teachers. There's so many amazing ripple makers. You know, you now you look at the Goliath of like school systems and, and curriculum and standards and common core and like the, and textbook companies, like these are Goliaths, right? And then you have these little ripple makers and there are so many amazing authors and pe- people who just have chosen a little passion because they care about some aspect of helping kids or families. There are so many people who have done such amazing work around things out there that you can really find enough resources to figure out, you know, if you're the type of parent or whoever's listening, teacher or whatever that wants to dive into it, it can almost be, it can be overwhelming. And there there are so many passionate people who really have spent years of their life diving into an area to serve people. Like if you're struggling with something, people have already figured out useful answers that you can find. So that's a really good thing about today. Yes. So I did crowdsource questions 
for this from members of the Tilt community. So I did want to just say one of the comments I got was since we've returned to campus, there's been a huge increase in testing student progress. I think it was implemented mainly to measure learning loss, but it is a lot more pressure on students, especially as many timed and disruptive to the regular classroom schedule. The teachers are doing their best to encourage students and decrease pressure, but the teachers aren't don't seem thrilled about the testing as well. So that's just feedback that I got from a listener. Is there any advice that you have for how we can push back on this? Because it is a lot of pressure for students and teachers who were frankly just burned out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many teachers are leaving. More than 50% of teachers leave by year five. You got to imagine this person took four years of their life, a lot of money just to become a teacher and pay for their college. Then they did it. Then they did it for a few years, got burned out and left. And then we're replacing them and just, re- and then we have shortages and substitute long-term subs, like create, like, it's just, I, I don't know the answers to these questions, Debbie, but my, here are my thoughts. You should be angry and you should connect with other people who are angry and you should make a ruckus, whatever that looks like in your community or your town or your school. Uh, oh my God, Debbie, you and I hear so many of the same stories from parents who feel like they're the only one. We hear so many stories from teachers who feel like they're the only one going through this. Somehow we've created a culture where people feel so isolated and like they're the only one. But you and I hear a million of the same stories. So get together with those people and make a ruckus and speak your voice and and come together. I do what what I can do. And this is just the work that I choose to do. And I try to do what I do on my blog or on my summits or on my podcast them on or whatever. But that's like my way of trying to contribute. But nobody can do everything. But get together with other people. Speak your voice. Know that if you speak your voice and you feel like it wasn't heard and like you were invalidated, that do not listen to that invalidation. Because I think a lot of times parents and teachers feel like if they air something and they're told you're crazy, that they'd say, Oh, am I am I crazy? No, you're not. Listen to your gut. You know, you're not the only one going through this. There's a very narcissistic nature to a lot of things in education. And again, I'm not saying this about everybody. This blanket statement does not mean that this is everywhere. There are amazing schools, amazing, cool innovations happening. But this is not uncommon at all. But speak your voice. And, you know, as far as the tests, some of the tests you can opt out of. Find out if you can legally opt out. That's a thing you can do. And find if there are other people who want to opt out with you. You know, I, I mean, teachers are at risk of if they do certain things, they might be able to be fired or not renewed. And parents, you know, there's pressure on parents to conform. And I wish I had better answers, but I think I, I think we're far from it. I think we are so dug into the the systems of that we have. There are people who are invested in keeping things the way they are and not changing things. And the people who are making major decisions about this stuff are not educators. So we have a very serious problem when we don't value educators. And then we have people making big decisions who are not educators about what educators should be doing. And the stakeholders are the parents and the teachers and the kids. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. 
Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Well, let's pivot and talk about some specific questions that were asked. I got a lot of questions about ADHD. No big surprise because ADHD and executive function challenges go hand in hand. But a lot of questions surrounding how ADHD kids can thrive in an environment that's really not based on their interests. We were talking about traditional school model. It is rote. It's repetitive. Transitions can be really hard if they're really invested in something. And they're always needing to pivot around things that they don't really care about often. So what would you say for parents who have kids with ADHD who are just kind of checked out of their school day? Well, I think that the most important thing is, and you and I have probably talked about all this, but the first most important thing is that relationship and just really working on building your relationship, doing your own self-care as a parent, doing your own deep inner work as a parent, being the best person you can be for yourself, the best parent you can be for your kid, and really taking time to invest in yourself because the better you are for yourself, the better you are for your kid and those, those sorts of things. And really learning and taking time to learn about relationships. And, you know, I like attachment theory and things like that, but learning about you know, the nervous system. And so I, I guess that's the first thing is sort of just remembering that they relate your relationship with your kids, the most important thing, no matter what happens in school, that preserving and maintaining and building that relationship is most important. 
Second is the enrichment idea or enrichment models from like, you know, gifted and talented world usually. But the, the idea is, is that whatever happens in school, be sure that you are building your kids' strengths, building on their interests, their passions, their curiosities, the things that they like, giving them time to really dive into learning things that may not have anything to do with school, enriching activities, you could call them, but it's really, you know, and it, it could be things that you you all are doing anyway, hobbies that you do with your kid, places you go, you know, whatever you guys do, but just building on those interests and passions and strengths and talents and gifts and things like that. And so no matter what happens in school, always giving plenty of time every week to allow your kid to invest their time and energy into enriching type of activities, discussions, and things like that. These, these do not have to be formal. It does not matter if they're formal or not. It can be with their play, whatever they're, they are interested in. You know, there's so much learning going on all the time right in front of you. Notice it. And there's something in teacher world called teachable moments, like find the teachable moments and help your kid realize that even the things that they're doing for fun are things to grow and build. The next thing is, is that regardless of what's going on in school, trying to more consciously build like executive function skills with that child in ways that are easy and normal and natural in your family. You already have calendars that you use. You already have to-do lists or color coding certain things for yourself or whatever. But just really thinking about what do you do and what does your child do even naturally? Like, look at what your child's interest. If they're interested in social media or video games, they do organize. They do manage time. They do manage their attention. They do focus. They do pay attention. They concentrate. They do d ignore distractions. Like if you're calling them to dinner and they're playing their video game, they're ignoring you. That Well, that is executive function, you know. So sort of creatively looking at how can you help them build systems that they're going to be using for their whole life, but in a conscious way. So I, I would be looking at that. Next is the advocacy piece. And I would be reaching out to teachers and, and being the squeaky wheel. You're going to get teachers that, you know, get an email from you or a conversation from you. And they're like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for telling me. I was unaware of this and, and I can do this, this and this. Or And you're going to get those teachers that are rigid and inflexible and that don't get it and don't want to get it. And don't stop advocating with them either. There are definitely ways to try to be heard and the other thing is, is there's something when I'm working with my students directly, like a thing that I like to say a lot of times is go for the C. And what I mean by that is, unfortunately, we have this system where you jump through certain hoops and then you're evaluated on those things. Did you complete the homework or the answers, the right answers? You know, did you do the essay? Was it turned in on time? You know, there are these things. And a lot of their resistance often has to do with that. They don't know where to start. It's very emotionally overwhelming. It just feels big, whatever the homework is or the assignment is. But the go for the C is just an example of one way of what I'm really talking about, which is how to alleviate some of the pressure. You know, like if I'm working with a kid, I'm like, let's, let's just go for the C. And that relieves the pressure where they can be like, okay, I can just do that. What happens is they get a B or an A anyhow, but they've let go of that pressure on themselves and they're just trying to get enough done. Now, I do not like doing work, busy work or stuff just for compliance, you know, but sometimes that's what has to be done, but they don't have to get an A. 
and parents, you got to weigh this stuff out. Like uh, there are different types of parents who have different types of expectations with this stuff. But I've noticed over the years that a lot of parents are very focused on getting it done, getting it done right, getting it completed, this word completion. And I talk a lot about what is complete enough, you know, like if, if your kid is not having time to develop their for enrichment stuff for time with you and the family. And they're like, even if you're like, yeah, but my kid does three hours of homework and they should only be doing 30 minutes because they waste all that time. And it, they just string. Listen, if it takes them three hours to do something that should take 30 minutes and that it takes other kids to do 30 minutes, they don't have the executive function to do what they're being asked to do for whatever reason. So, you know, really looking at how can I help them to figure out how to navigate these things enough. You know, when my stu- especially at the end of the semester, when my students are, let's say they have a D or an F in a class and we're trying to get them to pass and we're looking, okay, you have, you have 18 zeros. And mathematically, if we turn these in and you do five of them and you go for the C and you just get them done enough and turn them in, you'll actually have a C in the class mathematically. Let's just do that and be done. And, and parents really want their kids to finish all the homework in the list. And, but, but you have to really weigh things out and like really even reward them. And sometimes you'll notice that counterintuitively that you're like, hey, you have that homework and at least got it turned in. And I'm really proud of you. This is here are all the awesome things, the right things that you did tonight. And just get the, the stupid thing turned in, you know you often are going to get a lot more traction in the long run, in the long game with the good feelings, the good connection you're making with your your kid around that stuff, helping them feel seen for that, metacognitively telling them what they did well, which helps them to identify in a more strategic way the next time they do it, oh, I can do this rather than just sort of unconsciously throwing spaghetti at the wall, which is what most of these kids with executive function challenges do. So I've listed several and now I can't even remember the question. (laughs) Well, you answered the question and more for sure. And what came up for me, I love that you said, go for the C, good enough. You know, the question was, how can ADHD kids thrive in an environment? And what came up for me, and because I'm living this as a parent as well, and hearing your answer is that I think we often have this idea in our mind about what our kids, you know, we want them to thrive. Obviously, we want their school life to look and be a certain way. And Part of this is also being okay ourselves that it's not going to be that way. And so I love that you talked about enriching and doing these other things and focusing on relationship and just remembering that we may not get to a place where our kids are really thriving in the school system that they are going through and that that's okay. And it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to thank you for that. I think that's just such a good point because many of us aren't going to get there and our kids aren't. And so it doesn't mean all the things that we might make it mean if their school life doesn't look a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like shifting the focus. We we are so focused on these things need to be done, but we want them to be happy, healthy people in life. And, and they may not go to college. They may, they may flail around for five years after high school, blah, blah, blah. They may fail out of high school. They may get a GED. What I think you want to be asking yourself, or what at least I'm asking myself, and I may be speaking for Debbie too, probably because we know each other pretty well, but does this kid feel good in in his or her own skin? Do they have peace of mind? Do they have peace in their heart? Do they have good relationships, good people around them? Do they have joy? You know, some of the practical, are they able to manage finances? (laughs) Are they able to manage their, their home or apartment or whatever? You know, like 
that may sound silly, but like these are, life is complicated, but life is also simple. Like the things that we need, we, uh, that I want my kids to have is peace of mind, joy, connection, stability. So to me, the objective is really like at the end of each day, is your child going to, to bed at night sort of cleared? Like, are they lingering thinking about my parents are mad at me because I didn't finish this? Like you want them to be resting their head every night going, okay, you, you want them to feel like at peace, like you've resolved things and you're connected. I think that that relationship connection is so important, but every night when they go to bed, like the connections established, there is peace in their mind, peace in their heart. Generally speaking, I think that's really focusing on that. Yeah. And I love that, that sense of security, our kids feeling safe. Tina Payne Bryson and Dan Siegel talk about showing up for our kids, helping them feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. So to me, I always come back to that. So thank you for that. Let's pivot and talk about technology. I got a lot of questions, big surprise about tech. You mentioned earlier, just because of COVID, our kids are being asked to use devices that can be even more distracting. So many of us have kids who pretend to be doing work on their iPad or their computer, but unless we're hovering over them and watching what they're doing, they're doing their art projects or whatever it is that they're doing. So playing a game. So do you have any practical strategies or ideas for parents who are dealing with that tech challenge? Yeah, I hate to say it, but I don't have great answers. I mean, I wish that somebody would create an, you know, you remember that there was that thing where you could have your Mac be a Mac or a Windows computer. I wish that there was something where like the device could like just have the school related stuff when it was in a certain mode and it wouldn't even allow other things. And it could be framed really positively and the kids could have choice in whatever, like designing the parameters around some of that stuff. But I wish something like that existed, but as far as I know, it doesn't. So it really is just a struggle. And so here's what we've done is we have created learning situations where we say, here's the expectation we have of you do these things on this device that has way more interesting things. So ignore the interesting things, the more interesting things, ignore the more fun things, ignore the things that really activate your brain and and your addictive brain and focus on this thing and jump through these hoops again with all these questions to answer. And then we're going to evaluate you. And so it's just a difficult situation. Now, having said that, there are some practical things I do uh, on Google Chrome, but you could do this on any browser. But I love the bookmarks bar. The way that I think about it is your child can get to their interest links or games or whatever it is in a fraction of a second. (laughs) We want to reduce the friction of getting to the important school. You want to make what's easy hard and make what's hard easy. And you obviously want buy-in and ownership and connection with them and and sort of re-looking at the desktop of the computer and all the things and what's on it and so on and so forth. Uh, You don't, again, just want to top down be like, we're going to delete this from the computer. We're going to put this blocker on. Like you want them to be a part of it. And no, hey, this is for your life. Would you like to make school easier? Would you like to have more freedom, more fun, more choices in your future? But really authentically helping them under- connect the dots around how that stuff works. But what the bookmarks bar does is you can get it so that all of your important links for the grade portal or the class portals or 
the school homepage or the teacher's webpage or like I, I have kids sometimes they'll have like Google Classroom, Schoology, Infinite Campus. They'll have like, it's so confusing. It's such a mess. It really is. It's confusing for me. And I've seen, I've just seen it from so many different students. How And it's so confusing to find what they need. So anything you can do to reduce the friction, have their calendar, their Google Docs, all, all of the things right there in the bookmarks bar. There's a thing that you can do on Chrome where it opens certain tabs automatically. So I like to put them in order where it opens the calendar in the first tab, their email inbox in the second tab, because these kids are usually horrible about checking their school email, and then their class portals or their grade portal. So every time you open the browser, it opens those first. And then I like to get kids to find a blocker that they like and set it up so that they've decided these are the times I want it or don't want it. This is how it works. These are the things it shuts down. But again, you know, a lot of these kids, they can figure out how to bypass the blockers. They can, I have a student right now, he could get around everything his parents put in place, everything the school put in place. He could hack any, any of it. Now, you also got to give this kid credit. How much executive function did it take this kid to learn the skills to be able to do that? Those are valuable skills. Like this is not just like, oh, you're doing uh, the wrong things. Like these, these are opportunities for helping them connect the dots and helping them build passions, you know, but, but those are some of my tips. Oh, I also love customizing Google calendar and color coding it. I put it on the month view for almost every kid I work with because it's just for what I teach them. It's just the, usually the best view. We color code things. You can have, you know, homework that is not done could be in red. And then once it's done and, and in, because it's not done until it's in, but they could change the color of it to green, you know, but, and you have to also keep these things simple for kids. So like I teach kids shorthand with this stuff with like Google, Google calendar, you have to understand they don't have to write out a lot of details. Like you just need to get them started. Then you can worry about more of the quality later. But I, I love Google calendar. I like Google keep for project management for them. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. 
Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. You know, you just shared some really good tools and digital tools, calendar, bookmarks, bar, Google Keep. There are some teens who insist that because of their ADHD, the quote unquote typical executive function tools don't actually work on them. Oh, that's a great excuse. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you say to a kid who's like, no, that's not, that doesn't work on me. Well, first you hold space for them. You're curious. You're like, tell me more. Yeah. Tell me more. Explain. And I want to understand. And you really sincerely try to understand what they mean. And then you try to get buy-in and ownership and you say, what would work for you? What do you like? Who have you? And of course, uh, depending on the level of resistance, you're going to have kids that say, well, nothing ever, blah, blah, blah. And I definitely get that. I definitely get students like that. So when you are trying to help somebody implement something and they're saying this doesn't work for me and you know they're, quote, wrong, you know that is not an accurate statement. You know, it's a fixed mindset. This doesn't work for me. There's Carol Dweck. There's the growth mindset of how can I figure out how to make this work for me or ways that can work for me or ways that can somewhat work for me. But when we're dealing with mindset, I mean, I really want to hear them. I really want to notice their emotional state, you know, like they might say, yeah, this doesn't work for me. And they may do a squint their face in a certain way. And I'll say, oh, I noticed you just squinted your face in a certain way. You said that didn't work for you. Like, yeah, well, one time I had this teacher who blah, 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 or one time my dad, blah, blah, blah. And they were trying to make me use the planner like this. And and you can really hold space and help them explore the emotions that go around with their narrative and their story and their, their the, why this doesn't work for me. And then once that connection's reestablished and, and they feel heard and and they can now be present with you, then you can say, cool, well, can I, can I help you figure out a way that might work for you? And know that your way and their way may not be the same. Like, you know, especially if you're a very linear structured parent, like just because you have a system that works doesn't mean that's going to work for your kid. But the, I always talk about the principles. The principles underneath are what you want to look for. So for example, if you're like, oh, yeah, you should use this planner. This is the best planner. I've always used this one. You know, it's the principles. It's not the planner. So the principles underlying the planner, for example, are do we have a method of planning that is reliable? Do we put it on the desk or the table or in a place that's good? Do we have the colored pens or markers or whatever that we need or highlighters? Can we reliably track. So for example, I teach kids shorthand. Sometimes kids in their shorthand, especially younger kids will like use one or two letters. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, I don't remember. And I'm like, well, that's not useful shorthand. (laughs) But the principle of shorthand, like you should be quote lazy when there's times to be lazy. That's called efficiency. That's a smart thing, actually. 
it, when you have a very linear parent or teacher who tells you to write out the entire assignment with all the details and full words, don't do that. Why? Put as little as you need to. Now, if you're writing an essay, yeah, you're going to do that. But if you're writing your homework, put as little as you need to to get the details that you actually need. But being realistic about it. And I'll give you one uh, concrete example. When I'm helping kids who say, you know, this doesn't work for me, I want to chunk it down into the simplest thing. Listen, you have to be looking at the long game. This is not about the short game. This is not about getting them to use a planner well tonight. This is about, can I get them to, can I make it so easy for them that they, and I'm just, planner is just one example. Can I make it so easy for them that they can do it and then we can add to the complexity later? Listen very carefully to me. Say that again, please. We want to just get a little buy-in so that they can have a, quote, success experience or what I call micro successes. We want to give them an experience of success and then we can add to it later. So if I have a kid who can't, doesn't want to use analog planner or digital planner or nothing, they don't want to use any planner. The way I back it up is, okay, fine. Can you at least stick a note card in your pocket, carry it around all day, and anytime a teacher says something, try to jot something on it? You know, and, and then if they wrote one thing out of eight classes and you know that they missed eight, do not focus on seven. Do not focus on the seven that they missed. You take that one and you be like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. You did one. Look at this. I love how your handwriting was. Uh, my handwriting sloppy there. Yeah, but I think it's cool. And at least you you know, whatever. But you have to like really help them have almost a visceral experience of success around, hey, look, you pulled it out of your pocket. Like you just got to start there and then you can start building on things. Now, I will tell you, parents, if that sounds daunting, the good news is, is that once you get some momentum, it, you will get to a point where you can get a lot of momentum. So now they're taking the note card every day. They put two or three things on it. You know, you're building, building, building. And maybe two months later, all of a sudden there's like a breakthrough and you now can like it starts to gel. But you just have to understand that this the brain takes a while for the, the neurons to connect with these bit, really very large skill sets. That's great. And I just want to add something for parents to one of the things I talk a lot about is looking for the bright spots. I love how you just highlighted that little win. That's not just a win for your kid. It's a win that you as a parent or caregiver should acknowledge and celebrate in because we often can expect things to look a certain way. We don't notice the micro successes ourselves. I want to wrap this up, but I do want to look at school refusal. I got a couple questions about this, both from a kid perspective and from a school perspective. So schools often are, their hands are tied because if a child doesn't come to school a certain amount of time, they don't get the funds that they need. So schools are sometimes prioritizing the child attendance over the kid's mental health. Kids are struggling as well. They're feeling extra anxious, depressed, all of those things. I'm just wondering what comes up for you? What thoughts do you have around that? The first thought that comes up for me is that when somebody refuses to go somewhere and don't even think about a kid in school refusal, just think about you not wanting to go somewhere. You're supposed to go to an event or you're supposed to go to a family thing or you're supposed to go to something or you have to stand in a line in, in a bureaucracy for two hours or whatever it is. Imagine the somatic experience that your body goes through when you have to go somewhere. You, you don't want to go to that place because it doesn't feel good. It feels unsafe. It feels threatening. It feels yucky. It feels bad, whatever. 
the first thing I think of is that these kids are not refusing school because they're bad kids or they're, they're making bad choices or, but they're refusing because it feels that bad. Now, why? I, I mean, it's different for every story, but we have to start from understanding that this human being is being asked to repeatedly go through an experience that for some reason and we may not have all the, we may not know how they're being maybe bullied or, or what's going on. Maybe they're telling us, maybe they're not. But we have to understand that if they're refusing to go to school, their nervous system is on fire saying, this is not a safe place for me or a safe thing for me. And I don't, this is, we could talk about this for hours because that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about all of these complexities around it. So I want to say this is very, very, very complex. But to start off, it does not feel safe enough for them to go. It's unsafe. They're having a, a, a an experience in their body that says, ah, this thing is threatening me. You know, I'm going to be attacked. I'm My safety might be threatened. My well-being, like, I just want to make that super clear. And this is something I've seen more lately. And I think this relates to the pressure. There is so much pressure on them to be something they're not, to do all the things or from other students or, you know, from adults in their life, whatever. There's so much pressure that I I love this thing called polyvagal theory, if anybody's interested in researching stuff. But in polyvagal theory, there are these three main places that our nervous system goes. And there's sort of this top level, safe and social, connected, creative, open space. And that's where, for example, Debbie and I are right now. And then there's this fight or flight. Now, fight and flight are both active. Fighting is active and flighting, running away from something is active. They're both active energies. They're, they're angry. They're agitated. They're, they're, and then you have sort of this freeze or this lower, this shut down, this close. And that's how I imagine the school refusal. It, to me, it's, and it may be fight or flight, but it, to me, it feels like just this, my nervous system, I just don't want to go there. I just want to shut down and get away from it. I cannot go in that place. It does not feel, it does not feel safe and social, it does not feel open and creative. It does not feel. So that's my first thought with that school refusal. And if the question is like a parent saying, how do we get them to go to school? I mean, you have to deal with that, that they don't feel safe. And this is not an overnight matter. I mean, you have to figure out, is it other students? Is it feeling shame from teachers? Is it feeling pressure from tests? Is it feeling stupid? Is it feeling like they're not enough? You know, what are their narratives and stories? I would say probably almost 100% of uh, school refusal situations, they probably need actual counseling, actual therapy, real help, professionals who understand, because that's a pretty, pretty unsafe nervous system to refuse to go to school, you know? So to figure out what's going on, I mean, and, and I think kind of what you said at the beginning of our whole conversation is like, things don't have to look the same. Like if they refuse to go to school and you need to pull them out of school and start a different course of their life and and try to put back all the pieces, so be it. Whatever your kid needs for their mental health. But that is not mentally healthy for them to be forced to go. Now, then you have the, the question of the school, you know, the school saying, well, how do we get this kid to go to school? And then I would think that you have sort of a spectrum of functional and dysfunctional school and school policies and things like that. And hopefully, 
you have a more functional school staff and policies that say, wow, this kid really doesn't feel safe. How can we support this kid? What do we need to do? And that actually have the time, the money, the resources, the expertise to take it seriously. And, you know, that happened. And, and systemically, I think it's just a sign of, of how it's just a dinosaur of a system in a lot of ways. And the, the level of reform that's needed is so it's huge. Yeah. So Seth, as always, we've talked for a while. We could go on for hours and we did do a live webinar a few years ago that I think went on for three and a half hours, but I just want to wrap us up. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon or any last thought that you want to make sure that you impart before we say goodbye? For parents, the relationship and the fun and the joy and the love and the connection and ending every day on a high note, like don't, Don't let them go to bed angry and without things resolved. Like do your best to help them understand how incredibly beautiful and awesome and amazing they are every day. No matter what happens, help them understand how valuable they are every day and build on their strengths and their interests and their passions and their, the enrichment type stuff. Like just no matter what happens in school, keep finding what they, what their strengths are and what their gifts are and what their interests are and just keep building. It's okay if they go in a million different directions. It's okay if they want to do piano for one week and then ballet for one week and then play in the dirt for one week and then look at the clouds for a week and whatever. So I guess that's the, the what I would say for parents and for teachers. It's really to uh, work on creating learning experiences that are really differentiated, creatively differentiated to really accommodate all sorts of diversity, diverse brains, diverse personalities, diverse backgrounds, all sorts of different types of kids. And what your goal should be, to use the word should, another semantic, you don't should yourself. What you should do when you're creating, you know, these learning experiences is is try to create curriculum or learning experiences or themes or units that are so beautifully constructed. You teachers are artists, okay? And this is not easy. I'm not saying that this is easy, but try with your art, your creation of learning experiences to create learning experiences that empower every student to be, quote, successful. In other words, imagine every student in your class gets an A+. And for those of you that are like, that's not realistic, it is. Or imagine it is if you don't believe it, but have the intention of creating learning experiences where every single kid can feel like, well, whatever level they did on whatever levels of the unit was that they were successful, not because of the result, but because of the effort, the engagement, the being willing to try things and take challenge, you know, all the things that what they are doing is successful for them. And they can feel that, you know, they can feel successful. It's so funny. Right before you said that, I wrote down, because I always scribble a ton of notes, I wrote the way they feel. That's what it's all about. So thank you. That's such a wonderful note to end this conversation on. So much to think about. We talk all the time. I learn something every time we chat. So thank you so much for just what you do, how you show up for kids everywhere, for our community, and for everything that you shared today. So great. You too, Debbie. Debbie Reber is amazing. Debbie contributes to the world. She just gives so much and you're awesome. She knows I mean that. I really mean that. She's an incredible human being. 
You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.